Station. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Mind Your Business, a sponsored spin-off of the Call to Action podcast that gives inspiring, unusual or simply very likable businesses a chance to share their story. In a world where most businesses blend together like a briefcase filled with slightly smaller briefcases, we're seeking out the business leaders who are standing out in their sector and doing things very much their own way. It's like reading a business book with the word guru in the title, with the single but vital exception that it won't make you do a little sick in your mouth. It is, as always, brought to you by Gasp, and I'm still Giles Edwards. This is the first episode of a special three-part series with Startle, a talented tech company who curates music for brands looking to deliver customer experiences within spaces spanning retail, hospitality and beyond. Music is too powerful to be left in the background, so using a combination of music and tech, guided by behavioural science, Startle apply an approach they call Music Plus, allowing them to create branded atmospheres capable of hitting commercial objectives. Whether you're a food operator looking to get customers chewing faster, a retailer wanting to get shoppers shopping longer, or simply a fan of behavioural science and its application across a range of industries, stay with us to find out why the music sounds better with Startle. For this first episode, I've caught Adam Castleton, Startle's CEO and self-confessed lead singer who can't sing. Adam says people bang on that the high street is dead. But in reality, e-commerce clicks will always be second best to bricks and mortar. And dark kitchens will never replace your favourite restaurant. That's because even the best online experiences are hard to remember whereas real-life experiences are incredibly hard to forget. Welcome to the show, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Right, Adam, to start the show on Call to Action, we like to celebrate the weird and often wonderful ways that guests have ended up in the career that they are in. So, can you tell our listeners, what was your first ever job, and then what was your first proper job? So, my first ever job was a summer job. I worked at a little-known theme park in East Anglia called Pleasurewood Hills, and I was a ride operator there, lead ride operator for their flagship attraction, the Magic Mass. Uh, so I spent many a summer day sending people off on this roller coaster. And actually, that in- job was important for me because it's where I found a passion for the leisure industry and more broadly, hospitality, and even retail to an extent. And I've got young boys now. I take them to places like this now. And sometimes you see the staff moping around and you think, I, I was having way much more fun than you are now. And you realize it's just a mindset thing. And actually, if you have a lot of fun yourself when you're working in these environments and people are having fun around you, it's such an enjoyable industry to work in. And I think my passion for leisure and hospitality in general started from that that first job. First proper job. I had a bit of a problem. I was an IT geek and leisure wasn't quite doing it for me as the kind of person that the family and friends of family would bring you their broken Windows Millennium PC uh, <laughs> to fix at the weekend. And I was lucky to find an IT job within GoApe, the high wire adventure company. Uh, they were pretty small when I joined. I think they had a handful of sites, so six or so. Uh, and I helped them grow 
their business, but by helping them implement IT systems that were scalable. And that was really great. There's a lot of customer facing projects, things like booking systems, feedback systems, telecom system, that kind of thing. And a great company to work for. And I found that was the perfect intersection between leisure and people enjoying themselves, interacting with humans and tech and IT. After that, I moved to a digital agency helping um, mainly TV companies showcase their content to buyers at large exhibitions in Cannes. And then finally, about five years ago in a pub, I had an idea. And that was, wouldn't it be great if you could choose music from your phone? And Startle was born. So now we create music for some of the best known brands in the UK and the US and some other countries internationally, and also power the systems that deliver that music, digital screen content, lighting, and general digital atmospherics. And yeah, operate with several thousand locations across the UK, US and elsewhere. And actually, that is the ideal intersection of leisure, IT and media. It's like the perfect job. I've often wondered how many careers start with or how many businesses start with your quote, in a pub, I had an idea. <laughs> I'm going to force you to go right back to the beginning once more. So I've never heard of Pleasurewood Hills. How old were you when, when you started there? And did it start as a necessity, i.e. you needed to start earning money? Or was it a job that you actively sought out? I was 16, 16 or 17. So it was a summer job whilst I was still at high school. But actually, you know, when you're paid £3 an hour, you're not just doing it for the money. Are you doing it because you enjoyed <laughs> the social aspect of it? I was rejected for McDonald's and accepted by <laughs> Pleasure at Hills. Uh, so I've never had my path mapped out. I knew what my passions were, my interests were. I've been lucky that I've only had really three or four jobs prior to starting Startle, but each of them have been in an area that I'm passionate about and where I've got natural sort of skills for. And actually, what I've it's been a, a natural journey throughout all of those to land in a place where. You know, I always want, knew that I wanted to run a business, but I didn't quite know what that business would be. And it wasn't until I'd gone through that journey that actually, you know, you can align what you're good at and what you enjoy. And I think that's really key to unlocking the motivation that you need in business, but also being good at what you do. I've realized that I was in my proper jobs. I was always in an office next to the MD or the leadership of the business. And I think with remote working being so prevalent now. Actually, there's a lot of opportunities and a lot of knowledge that I learned through being next to leaders of growing businesses that I wouldn't have got today if we were working entirely remotely. But yeah, none of that was designed. It happened naturally. What I find really interesting about your route, and I've just mapped it out here in front of me quite crudely, is that there was always customers at the core. There was an opportunity to use technology. Working with senior management, I think, is significant because then it feels very, very real. There's no different agendas or different sections of a business where someone might have, say, responsibility for marketing, but not really understanding the commercials, for example, which I think is a common problem in my world, whatever department that might be. So I suppose in a way, yes, there was serendipity and luck at play in terms of why you ended up at Pleasurewood Hills and then subsequently go ape and so on. But also there must have been some luck at play too about having that customer so central to every part of this journey. Yeah, whilst I love technology, I'm massively anti-tech for using tech for the wrong reasons. There's so many examples where people have got a tech solution and they want to shoehorn an idea into it and you just create these really naff, tech experiences and that's what gives tech a bad name what technology in general is is it, it should enable experiences 
It should enable efficiencies. It should enable businesses. And really, you need to know what you're trying to achieve, what the problem is, and then find a tech solution for that, not the other way around. That's incredibly important. And the second piece of that is I love watching people interact with tech that I've been a part of building. So to be able to walk through a Westfield, visit stores and restaurants where we are influencing that experience, seeing how people are behaving, seeing people enjoy themselves. That's really the thing that gets me out of bed and motivates what I do is the fact that people are benefiting from this. And you can see that happening in the real world. Whilst, yes, I could have gone into e-commerce or some sort of entirely online experience, you don't really get to see the other end of what you're building. And I think that's the commonality between what I'm doing now and what you did when you were loading people onto a roller coaster and watching people have a good time. I love that. I like talking to the founder of a tech business who describes themselves as anti-tech. I've trimmed that sentence. It was anti-tech or using tech for the sake of tech. But I think that's really important. Last time I flew long haul, they had replaced the check-in desks with, you know, self-service type technology. And not only did it cause huge panic on the faces of people of predominantly certain generations, which I think I can say quite fairly, but also just people who weren't as familiar with tech. So there is a danger, isn't there, when you're working with technology of assuming everyone is the same as you. But when you're doing what you do, it must be very important that the technology enables experiences, as you say, but does so passively and isn't reliant on people having certain skills, which might not be shared by all. Yeah, I guess there's two sides of delivering tech within the industries that we work in. One is the tech that people directly interact with. So you know, order at table type technology that you see in restaurants, that kind of stuff. But I think there you need to enable, you need to offer a choice so people can go to what is most natural to them. I use self-service at a checkout. I use touchscreens. I use brands apps if their apps are good. For our tech, it's really about powering an atmosphere. And actually, the more subtle we are in doing that, I think the better our achievement in that brand. So if you go into a store and you come out thinking, well, that was awesome, you might not have realized that the music was playing a part of that. The lighting was playing a part of that. The bass was finely tuned of the audio that you were listening to. It's that kind of subtle tech, actually, which is the magic that people don't necessarily realize that they're being exposed to because they're not interacting with it directly. But it is influencing their customer experience. Makes sense. In a nutshell, can you describe what Startle is and what Startle does? Yeah, so we help brands create atmospheres and we make sure that those atmospheres achieve some kind of business objective whether that's making people change their perception of a brand, eat their meal quicker, dwell for longer. Um, so that's the first bit what we do. We, we create an atmosphere using behavioral science and music. Um, the second piece, which is actually the really hard thing, is to replicate that at scale across an entire estate. So our technology platform allows people to deliver that consistent atmosphere across all of their stores once we've designed it perfectly in, in one or a handful. And what does that mean in terms of being designed perfectly? A few minutes ago, you talked about using apps if apps are good. What is good? You said about customers maybe dwelling for longer. Is good defined by the businesses and your clients' objectives rather than your objectives in those instances? Yeah, so typically customers will come to us with a brief, and that brief is either full of objectives or full of branding, what we do is make sure that there are sort of hard objectives that we can nail the project onto. So what is it that you want to achieve? If it's branding, it's not about your image. It's how do people currently associate your brand and how do we get them to feel a future association that may be different or reinforcing how you feel about your brand. So how do you want people to feel? How do you want people to behave? And once we've nailed those things, we can look at all the tools that we have to help deliver that in the in-store experience. And does your product, which I mean very broadly, does that suit 
particular industries more so than others? Or is this something where it's more you focused on retail and hospitality, but actually its application is, is, is far wider than that? Yeah, our focus is retail and hospitality. That's fairly loose. We work with office spaces, for example. Retail is all of retail. Hospitality is all of hospitality. So that could be you know, a restaurant or it could be a hotel. Typically, it's just a location that has a physical space and they care about the customer experience. And they care about how people feel. Um, so if you've got those things, it's definitely a, an industry that we can, we can support. Nice. You've recently published a new book, Atmospheres That Sell. I have a copy here. Using behavioral science to create branded atmospheres in retail and hospitality. Now, a friend of ours and friend of Call to Action, in fact, he recorded the maiden episode of Call to Action, Richard Shotton, better known for being the author of The Choice Factory, he says on Startle specifically, there are many areas that behavioural science can be applied commercially, with music and atmosphere being some of the least exploited. Startle are at the forefront in this area. Is that why you decided to write this book? Well, it's nice to know that we're good at it. Um, So thank you, uh, Richard. Um, It's not why we wrote the book, but Richard's certainly a person that got me into behavioural science. He has a, a great book himself. Ultimately, behavioral science is integral to everything we do. So we curate music, but we do it with intent. And to do it with intent, you need to know how you can influence people. And ultimately, behavioral science kind of underpins that. We wrote the book because we wanted to share our knowledge with people that would benefit from that. And we've got a whole load of tools that are relevant to retail and hospitality within behavioral science. And a lot of that costs nothing to implement. So, you know, it's not an easy time for retailers and hospitality brands at the moment. But actually, you know, here's a book of ideas of things you can start experimenting with to improve your customer experience. And ultimately, there's great resources out there, Richard Shotton's book being absolutely one of them. Um, But 99% of those are focused on marketing, which if you're a marketer within hospitality, that's great. But actually, there was nothing really that operators could grab hold of and understand behavioral science and have ideas to, to implement. So that's why we we wrote that book to to fill the gap. I find when I talk about behavioural science to people, it's funny, again, this is rear mirror stuff. It's funny how people see it as a a leap of sorts into something new, like behavioural science is is a new territory for people to understand and explore. But ultimately, at its core, it's just an understanding of why people behave in the way they do. So actually, whether you're doing it in a retail environment or a hospitality environment or an office environment, it's going to be true of so many businesses. Yeah, so it feels like a big field. There's a lot of studies, a lot of research, but actually we put a lot of work up front and distilling it into what is the helpful stuff? How do we collect these kind of biases into groups that we can use? How do we make that into a way that you know anybody could pick up a book and within half an hour feel fairly confident in having a behavioral conversation with somebody? What is its significance to the retail and hospitality industries? So when you study behavioral science, you realize that many of actually the suppliers to the retail and hospitality industry have been getting it wrong for years. So for example, in our industry, so the background music industry, typically a first meeting will go like this. You know, what is your favorite music? What the music do you like? What do your staff like? What's your demographic? And the music profile becomes based on what people like, what the demographic is. And that's so wrong. You can imagine a store that has a really broad demographic and it's easy for everywhere to sound the same because you're trying to appeal to to everybody. And there's nothing distinctive if every store starts to feel the same because you're trying to apply a, a profile to a broad demographic. 
it's more important to us to understand why people are there, the context at which they're in that space. And that might be, I don't know, tradespeople in early in the morning versus business people on their lunch break, families after school. So it's really not about who they are. It's about how they're feeling. Are they stressed? Are they relaxed? Do they have time on their hands or, or do they not? And then ultimately overlaying your objectives to that. Do you want to increase dwell, decrease dwell, change the way people move within a space? Yeah, it's really significant to the retail and hospitality industry. Those are some examples. I like your point on dwell time. And actually, we do have some questions that we've sourced from the industry that aren't for now. If you are interested, stay tuned because there'll be an episode three of this series where someone has, without giving too much away, has asked about there being an optimal playlist or a best playlist to use in almost every context which I suppose to your point on subjectivity completely misses the point because in some instances you're going to want to increase dwell time and in other instances you're going to want to decrease dwell time so it goes back to a word you used previously which was intent and I think that's the key word it's about using these materials or ingredients if we want to call music ingredients and using those for that intent um, which I find so interesting Yeah, and quite often those different objectives can happen in the same space. So a coffee shop that has slow time, post-morning rush, busy lunchtime, actually the objective of the business is completely different. It's to have people stay for a second cup if you're in the quiet window versus maximum throughput at the busy time. So there's we need two playlists, we might need different volume, we might might need different base levels at, at that time. But also how do you detect the fact that that has changed? It's not necessarily predictable. You can't use day parting. But can you use sensors to detect busyness, for example, and change those things dynamically? And that's something that our tech platform allows us to achieve. Oh, brilliant. They're really good questions that I wish I'd asked you. Let's pretend I asked those. So, so you can detect that with sensors and then demonstrate that there is a, a commercial goal being hit because of your product. Yeah, so we have a product called Atmosphere that we can uh, supply a sensor. It goes, it's cheap. It's very um, easily to replicate um, across multiple stores. It detects things like busyness, ambient noise levels, uh, movement, temperature, kind of all atmospheric things. We report that in the dashboard. So that's uh, used for two things. One is just giving information to multi-site operators. They can see, you know, when they need to staff up, for example. And using our solution, we can basically create if this, then that type logic into our platform. So if busy, behave like this in your music and your signage. If quiet, behave like that. Uh, And then that happens automatically. So we design a busy theme and a quiet theme in that example uh, and it switches automatically wow there must be so many variables involved not just even if you just think of customer profiles and how that might change during the day but equally just the subjectivity of music is there ever a time when subjectivity aka playing music someone likes is a valid goal because you don't want to play music people don't like necessarily there must be a balance between playing music with intent but also making sure you're playing music that someone is at least able to enjoy yeah it needs you need to be playing music that's not going to alienate people but equally you don't necessarily need to be playing the music we shouldn't be playing the music that people say they want which brings us actually nicely on to a topic around feedback and getting feedback from people and this again is another area in which retail hospitality use a lot of surveys and post-visit surveys whereas actually they'd be better doing more observed feedback actually watching people and how they use the space and perhaps demoting some of the the influence they give to to feedback. There's a great quote from David Ogilvy, which is, people don't think what they feel, they don't say what they think, and they don't do what they say. 
which is something that we talk to our clients about quite a lot. And this is that people post-rationalize. They behave in a certain way. And then when you ask them, why did you do that? Why did you feel that way? Quite often they'll justify what they did based on a logical conclusion, not a psychological answer to how they behaved that way in the first place. So one of the things we do is we have a weighted model when we look at feedback. So we promote observed feedbacks. That's you visiting stores, seeing how people behave. We give way much more priority to that than we do a survey where you've just got a load of subjects basically post-rationalizing. I've lost count of how many times I've used that David Ogilvy quote in my own meetings, but it is absolutely right. And there is that, again, behavioral science being the study of people and human beings and their behavior. Humans are weird and we have this want to have an answer, like a logical answer that dictates everything. But I think history has taught us that human beings are anything but logical. So having observed data and observed measures must be imperative which is why I think having sensors and having the measures that you do in place make complete sense. We interrupt this podcast to announce that we will never interrupt this podcast with ads. Ads that awkwardly nudge you to contact the pod's host, Giles Edwards, on giles at gasp.agency. Only the other day, some pod listening companies did just that, asking whether we'd stick our sponsored spin-off nose into their business next. But we're not asking you to do that. Nope. Anyway, back to the show. If we jump back into the book, can you give us your favourite behavioural science heuristic from the book or any examples that you touch on? Yes, for me, one of the most interesting areas is one of the early chapters that talks about mood. So how people are feeling. And there's two things that we can really influence. One is actually how people are feeling and the resulting behavior because of they, they feel in that, that way. And I think it's particularly interesting because there's this evolutionary instinct that sits behind mood in that people have their guard down when they're not being chased by a lion, uh, for example. Uh, so what we find is actually what the studies have shown is people are more malleable when they're in a good mood. So what does that tell us? Quite often, actually, if you want to influence people in your retail store, make sure they're in a good mood, what are you doing to put them into a good mood. And there's some studies which I'm sure we'll explore on other um, other episodes, such as the ISO principle, which actually changes people's mood. It lifts their mood with the music that you play. And then after that, what are you doing once people are in a good mood to influence how they behave? So as an example, we work with a coffee shop chain in the Midlands called Bear. Highly recommended, amazing brunches. If you're in the area, stop by Bear. But they go from coffee shop by day, bar, by night, completely different contexts and a completely different vibe. Uh, so we use our sensors in Bear. We detect when the environment is changing. We actually increase the base when it goes into the evening as well as the volume, and that's done automatically because there's studies that say that increased base increases confidence levels. Um, so people are more likely to stay, more likely to walk up to the bar and buy something else. So that's where we are using the ISA principle to build people up to a good mood, changing the environment, and then intentionally looking to influence behavior by increasing confidence levels, ultimately to stay longer and to have a better time. I've never heard that about base. Is there anything within that, though, where, you know, there, there must be like a tipping point where too much base 
has quite the reverse effect or certainly a different effect. <laughs> Absolutely. You can give people headaches if you've got too much base. Yeah. You need to be careful about where that's being localized. Um, so you don't want to overdo it. You also really need to be subtle about these changes. So even when it comes to the ISO principle and you're trying to take people from one mood to another, you have to do these things gradually. You shouldn't really notice. I think we've all been in an environment where somebody's, you know, it's nighttime, we turn the lights down, turn the volume up and it all happens suddenly. And actually that has a negative effect. Um, what we do is gradual, subtle changes. So even when we're switching from one context to another, our system makes sure that we're taking small stepping stones between point A to point B. And yeah, whilst we're influencing people, ultimately it's so that they have a good time, which is obviously beneficial to the brand, regardless of you know how much they spend. I like the fact you mentioned that people shouldn't notice, partly because it goes back to the very start of this episode where you talk about people using tech for tech's sake and that it should enable experience. So it isn't at all prohibitive and doesn't introduce any friction that might otherwise exist. I remember one of the first, I think it was one of the first TED Talks I ever saw, which might be close to 20 years ago now, where someone was talking about how in the US, I believe it was Target, were one of the first retailers to use loyalty points to dictate the contents of their direct mail pieces. And they famously sent a leaflet out to a particular family full of products which were relevant to someone who would become pregnant. And in this family home, there was a, a, a young woman who had indeed become pregnant but hadn't yet plucked up the courage to tell her mum and dad and it had a very you know as you can imagine quite a the opposite effect of what they had intended to have and what they learned from that story and no doubt other examples was that there are huge commercial benefits to be had from the data points that you can take from your customers but actually putting it in people's faces is too either intrusive or can be counterproductive and I think the conclusion of that talk was that Target still use the data in the right way, but they would put the products that were specific to that particular customer profile smaller or further down the piece of direct mail so that the recipient still went through that experience of feeling like they had they had explored and found the product themselves rather than it was being literally shoved in their face. So yeah, the idea that customers shouldn't notice sounds important. Yeah, and I think the, you know when we see results, it's usually from the subtle things and also sometimes from the unexpected things, um, which is one of the kind of guiding principles of behavioral science, actually, is you should just experiment, especially when most of this is really not very costly to implement. I do think personalization can go way too far. And that example being loyalty is also really interesting because one thing I think that's clear, especially post-pandemic, is you can't buy loyalty. And actually, the experience is way more important. So we look at two benefits in the work that we do. We have the immediate commercial uplift. So can we get people encouraged, X percent of people to have a second coffee, stay for longer, so on. Uh, So you've got the immediate commercial gain, but actually you have the really long-term stuff that's not tangible. And that is, how can we influence people so they actually had a really great time? They will have a perception of your brand. They're more likely to come back. They're more likely to tell other people and they're more likely to come back again with a favorable impression of your company. And I'm sure we'll talk about expectancy theory later. But yeah, the, the second part is the sort of the less tangible, longer term brand impression stuff. And actually, I think that's more valuable than the immediate commercial uplift you can get from selling an extra cup of coffee. I like the fact that you you accept that there is experimentation at play or there needs to be the idea that it's unexpected things 
I, I've, I have massive issues with businesses selling guarantees in most industries. So the idea that some discoveries that you might make when you're in this space are unexpected. Again, it sounds appropriately human to admit that. Yeah. And I think what the studies show you is sometimes humans behave in the opposite way that you might logically expect. Uh, and actually, if you don't try some things that seem illogical, you might not find something that works better for you. So there's the common story of bees that go away from their nest to find 10% of bees going exploring other opportunities. We tell that story to the people that we work with. And that's ultimately that, you know, most of the time, the 10% of bees will die, but some of the time they might find something better, a new home, or they might be the reason why that colony survives, for example. Um, so we tell that story to the companies that we work with. And actually, um, quite often, they're large enterprise companies that ha- have a risk adverse approach to what they do, typically. And sometimes it's quite uncomfortable to say, let's try something, it might fail. But if it fails, don't worry about it. Because if it didn't fail, you might find something actually that's really powerful. And often that's not something that we do as a first project. Often that's something that we work on as we sort of build our relationship with a customer and build trust over the years. But the customers that we do that with are the ones that get so much value out of our service because we're actively trying to work with them to see what works and what doesn't. That honeybee story is actually a really nice bridge to one of the final things I wanted to touch on briefly with you, because I've heard Rory Sutherland talk about the percentage of honeybees who seemingly ignore the waggle dance. And he, I think he refers to them as basically the R&D department, because if they were all fully compliant on following the waggle dance, they would ultimately all perish and die out when food sources ran dry. So Rory is the head of a behavioural science event called Nudgestock, which is, I believe, the world's biggest festival of behavioural science. And Startle is partnering. So this episode might have come out post-event, but can you tell us a little bit about why you plan to show up at Nudgestock this year? Yeah, so we've been following Nudgestock for a long time, actually, during the pandemic, a great event. Um, always wanted to do something with them because there's such a natural fit in what we do and behavioral science and the event. And now that it's in person for the first time since the pandemic, it's provided the perfect playground to demonstrate how music can be used to influence people. So yeah, I'm very excited to have a room full of guinea pigs. We're curating the music throughout the event, multiple different areas. And I believe that we're giving out an absolute ton of air guitars. My garage is full. (laughs) Amazing. Well, let's leave that there. Adam, this has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to everyone for spinning along with this Call to Action sponsored spin-off. Next week, we'll release the difficult second album, aka episode two, where we'll be hearing more about behavioural science-backed beats from Team Startle, including why brands often miss a beat when it comes to how they think about using music in their venues. A lot of places tend to still see music solely as an entertainment service, So it's given minimal thought when designing spaces, but the power of music in communicating other aspects of business like brand personality or tone of voice is amazing. And so loads of brands miss out on this because of a kind of contextual misunderstanding of what background music is and how it can function. Join us for the next part and please do send in any questions you have or any inspiring businesses you think we should feature to call to action at gasp.agency. I can't get no call to action. I can't get no
Try and I try and I try and I try. 